0: Word Radio On Demand, 96.1 FM and 900 AM WURD, streaming live at wordradio.com. This is Amadi Braxton, your host, and I'm very pleased to be joined by Dr. Jessica Gordon-Nemhardt, Nemhard, is a professor of community justice and social economic development in the Department of Africana Studies at John Jay College in New York City at the City of University of New York. She is an affiliate scholar at the Center for the Study of Cooperatives at the University of Saskatchewan in Canada, and an affiliate scholar with the Economics Department's Center on Race and Wealth at Howard University. She's a political economist specializing in community economics, Black political economy, and popular economic literacy. Her research and publications explore problematics and alternative solutions in cooperative economic development and worker ownership, community economic development, wealth inequality and community-based asset building and community-based approaches to justice. Her book, Collective Courage, A History of African-American Cooperative Economic Thought and Practice, was a finalist for the University of Memphis Benjamin L. Hicks National Book Award for 2014. Welcome to the show, uh, Dr. Gordon Nemhard. Really happy to have you.
1: Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: So your book, Collective Courage, which I've been uh, devouring this week in preparation for this conversation, um, is such an important and seminal work tracing the history of African-American cooperative economic activity. Um, And before we dive into this history, which is really going to be the bulk of our conversation, can you just define for our listeners what is a cooperative business? And maybe, maybe name some cooperatives that people might be familiar with or maybe not even realize that they're cooperatives.
1: Yes, certainly. So, so a cooperative is a values-based, member-based business or enterprise. It's def- has defining features which are again that the owners are called members that the purpose of a co-op is to solve a community problem through joint ownership and democratic governance. So cooperatives have what's called one member, one vote, instead of one share, one vote. So it doesn't matter how much money you put in or invested into the business, everybody has the same uh, equal one vote in the decision-making about the company and the business. We call it a values-based business because it's based on a set of values and principles that are all about solidarity, caring, uh, equity, equality, democracy, democratic participation. And then there's actually seven internationally recognized principles of cooperation that are usually built into most co-op and corporation laws. And those include things like voluntary Uh, membership, um, the one person, one vote and democratic participation, limited return on capital. It's more about the use, how you use and participate in the co-op, giving back to community, concern for community, uh, cooperation with other co-ops. There's an autonomy, independence and autonomy principle also so that co-ops aren't bound to like a political party Or, uh, you know, have some level of independence because, again, they're community owned and run. So this notion of making uh, economic decisions as a group together uh, for the common good is very important. And while they do create surplus or profit, they're not profit maximizing in terms of their purpose is not to minimize costs and maximize profits. Their purpose is to address a community need. So then we have about four different kinds of cooperatives. Consumer cooperatives are the most plentiful and the ones people probably know but might not realize they're a cooperative, that's where the consumers, the people who want to buy the product, come together to basically to buy in bulk so they can get access to affordable quality goods. So a food co-op, mostly people come together because they want access to fresh produce to organic food, um, they might want access to vegan and vegetarian foods, and so they come together to pool their resources to create a store that will have the products that they want to buy at and buying in bulk, buying as a group reduces the cost. A credit union is also a consumer co-op. It's a consumer financial cooperative. A lot of people are in credit unions and don't realize that's also a co-op. Technically, your first $5 deposit in your credit union gives you membership and we should all be voting in our credit unions. There's an opportunity to vote once a year. There should be an annual meeting, that kind of thing. But again, the purpose of the credit union is to make sure we have access to affordable financial services and affordable loans, and that we get a better price back on our savings, and again, get a say in some of these policies, who gets loans that kind of thing you can participate as much or as little in your credit union as you want. So those are the kinds of uh consumer co-ops a housing co-op is also similar. People who need housing and need want affordable housing in particular would join together, pool their resources to buy into a place that where they would have uh sole access to a unit that's collect that we're in a building that's collectively owned or in a Uh, an ownership structure that's collectively owned to make, again, the housing affordable, accessible. And you get, again, that participation. So you get a say in the rules of the ownership rules, et cetera. But you individually don't have to get a a mortgage, right? The co-op gets the mortgage so it solves some of the access problems as well Mm -hmm. as affordability problems. Then there's worker co-ops. Those are where employees own the company themselves and own and run the company. Um, Producer co-ops where farmers or artists own a co-op to produce or market or distribute what they own, what they have. So actually, Land of Lakes is a cooperative. It's a producers cooperative. All the dairy farmers that that's sell the their
0: that's the right, butter that right sell their
1: milk right they sell yeah. their milk to the co-op which they're a part owner of. And then the co-op produces their milk products into milk, butter, cheese, etc. cetera, distributes it, markets it, and distributes it for the farmer. And mm. so that's a way, again, to get better access to better prices, to be able to afford production of their good, that kind of thing. But there's also producer co-ops that are artists. There's quilting co-ops. There's artists that own their own uh, space and market together, um, things like that. So, you have those kind of co-ops. And then the fourth model is actually a newer one, what we call a multi-stakeholder model. That's where you can combine producers and workers, workers and consumers. Um, and so, you have some examples. There's some uh, restaurants where both the workers in the restaurant and the community own the restaurant together. Uh, child care where the parents and the childcare providers might own the co-op together. Um um, the multi-stakeholder has a lot of options, but is much newer model and not used as much. But that gives you the idea that there's really there's so much flexibility in how to do this values-based economic ownership um, mm-hmm. in almost any sphere and in any industry. And there's all kinds of configurations. The major things again are to emphasize those values of caring, solidarity, equity, participation, democracy. And uh, to structure the business according to those kinds of values, mm.
0: you know, uh, I mean the key the key thing that you said that leapt out to me is like these are not these kinds of structures are, are not about maximizing profit, right. and our system, our economic system that we're functioning in, is largely about that. Um, right. And uh, I'm hoping that those listening, because I th- I think a lot of times when when we as african americans are trying to like get ahead in this system we feel like we have to play the game of the capitalist maximization of profit game and try to just do our best to 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 win at that um and there's so many things stacked against us um right. in order to be able to be successful in that in that way and this is an alternative to that
1: yeah the wonderful thing about cooperative businesses is not just their flexibility and their focus on people and democracy, right? But the fact that that kind of structure actually allows them, helps them to be, they're usually more long-lasting than other small businesses. Uh, worker co-ops, are more, the, the productivity is higher in a worker co-op than in a regular small business because of these Because of the values and the principles, right? So people who are working together, making decisions together, have better job satisfaction, which makes them more productive, right? Um, The pooling of resources and making things affordable reduces costs, reduces uh, the stress on things like transportation and The environment and things like that. So many co-ops are actually more environmentally friendly. Um, So when we start to look at the benefits of co-ops, they actually rival and often outweigh the so-called benefits of a capitalist system. It's just that we live in the we're in the belly of the beast. So that all the messages we get are about how capitalism is so great and how these excessive profits that you can make, you know, if you can just get your foot in the door, you can make these excessive profits and and help your family. Right. But they don't tell you know, the story doesn't talk about all the exploitation that happens under capitalism, even under black capitalism. Right. You're still exploiting Mm -hmm. workers because that's how you maximize profit by minimizing your costs. Your costs are labor costs. Your costs are. Uh, products, and materials, and, and Mother Earth, right? So capitalism mm-hmm. destroys human beings and destroys Mother Earth. So even if some individuals can do well with capitalism, it's not a human-friendly, people-friendly, planet-friendly structure. Right. In fact, and- capitalism is actually relatively new in the human trajectory, right? It's only four or 500 years old, right? We really started, human beings started out being collective, cooperative, using solidarity practices, right? All the early economic systems were more about sharing and helping each other and making sure that the common good was benefited rather than individuals. It's just Mm -hmm. been a short time in the span of human history that we focused on profit maximizing and individualized individuals getting better Mm -hmm. but it's hard because when you're in the belly of the beast the only thing you know is to get a piece of the pie what you think is is the pie you don't learn about co-ops if you do hear about them or see any you usually see small ones that aren't major players the big the big players you don't even realize they're co-ops because people don't talk about it you're not taught how to cooperate in school you're not taught you're not given uh Uh, opportunities to practice or to try to be in a cooperative. And so there's no way we can really know. When I first started studying co-ops, and I had to be self-taught because my PhD is in economics, but uh, my program didn't teach, most programs don't teach cooperative economics. Mm -hmm. I had to teach myself about it. And when I first started learning about it, other economists were telling me, oh, it's inefficient. Oh, it's too small scale. You can't Get to scale with it, you know everybody who was a naysayer about how to use it, but then when you start to study how people have used it through history, when you look at other countries, when you look at the successful co-ops in the US, all those barriers, all those naysayers, all those negatives actually melt away when you actually see that they perform better, can mm-hmm. do better, f- help more people um, and and allow still allow each owner to make, you know, to do well enough to get that house to have, you know, food on the table, to get your children to college, that kind of thing. So you don't really have to give up stuff, but you gain a lot when you Mm -hmm. learn about and decide to be participate in the co-op.
0: Well, let's dig into the history a bit, because um, what I found fascinating, like at the very start of your book, you kind of explain how economic cooperation is in our collective DNA as African Americans right. and how our existence here from the very beginning has necessitated cooperative economics as a strategy, even during slavery, which I was surprised to even consider that. Um, what are some of the earliest forms of economic cooperatives during slavery times?
1: Right. So just start so and to nitpick, I know we don't really want to talk about this, but um, it wasn't until the late 1800s that you could actually incorporate an enterprise as a co-op in the US. Mm. So, when we talk about the earlier things, they were co-op-like and they were economic cooperation, but they might not have been an actual incorporated co-op business. And so, um, the early activities were mutual aid, which we still have, Um, But Blacks had mutual aid societies from the 1700s, from very early. Uh, In fact, the first mutual aid societies, really interesting to me, were for burial.
0: Mm.
1: And, you know, I'm also uh, an Africana studies, African-American studies scholar. And um, burial was so important to our cultural identity from Africa. And so the fact that we often... You know, we didn't own our own bodies. We were enslaved, right? We had no say over anything. But we pooled money, meager resources to bury our dead properly because mm-hmm. that was part of how the only ways we could assert our humanity and and keep some of our culture, right? So from the very early on, there was this connection between the economic solidarity and economic cooperation and uh, human dignity, socio-cultural. Practices to make sure we were asserting ourselves as human beings. So mm. we pooled meager resources to do that. We often um, farm together. You know, they talk about those kitchen gardens in the slave quarters. Well, those were all collective, co- cooperative farming efforts, even though they were just small kitchen gardens, so that we could at least have some healthy food for our children as and it enslaved. People.
0: It was all shared. And
1: it was all shared. Right. Let me let me pause um, those, you right there
0: only because I realize yeah. we're up on our first break. When we come back, we'll oh, just continue okay. on this point um about during slavery times what were what was the economic cooperation that was happening. Right. Um I'm here with uh Dr. Jessica Gordon Emhardt, and we'll be right back talking about economic cooperation in African American history. <laughs> While young people beg for the attention of their president concerning our actions abroad, I would encourage them to speak out, organize for peaceful change and vote in November. You're listening to Solutions with Amadi Braxton on WURD progressive black talk media. Welcome back to Solutions on WURD, Progressive Black Talk Media on air, 900 AMs, 96.1 FM and online at wordradio.com. I'm back with Dr. Jessica Gordon Nemhard talking about the history of cooperative economics in the African American community. And we were just getting into some of the earliest forms of co-op economic cooperation during slavery times. Um, so I want to, I want to allow you to pick, kind of pick up where you left off there.
1: Yes. So in addition to the mutual aid societies starting and people pooling what they had, we also have examples of people pooling money to buy each other's freedom or to help their, buy their mother's freedom or whatever. And, you know, the interesting thing is some African-Americans did have some money because sometimes they were allowed to, um, skilled workers were allowed to pay, you know, get get outside work on a Sunday or something when they weren't working for their master. Their master would take some of the money, but they had some. So there was also this pooling of resources to buy each other's freedom. But the other thing that people don't often think about as an economic cooperative solidarity system is the Underground Railroad. Mm -hmm. Um, If you think about it, it was an economic solidarity system. You had to have, somebody had to have money for the wagons to hide and move people from one place to another and hide them. They had some people had to have houses with um, basements to hide people. They had people fed each other. Right, it was kind of a barter system. Right, but still, barter is considered an economic solidarity kind of system. And you, you know, moving enslaved people to freedom through the Underground Railroad was a social and an economic system of cooperation and solidarity. So that's another way to kind of think about the early ways. We got used to helping each other, sharing what food we had, sharing what money we had, that kind of thing. Um, The other thing that's so interesting in this period is a lot of the mutual aid societies were both enslaved people started them and freed people uh, had them before uh, the Civil War and after the Civil War. And we find that even the pre-Civil War mutual aid societies, 60 to 80% of them were actually started and run by black women. Mm. So we have this um, long relationship of black women kind of taking charge, doing these economic solidarity activities. Um, making sure they happen, making sure their family and their communities are better off because of the kinds of things they're able to do. And that also ended up uh, leading into the co-op movement. I actually found early on in the 1930s, especially uh, many examples of black women who were running and doing co-op activity, co-op education, co-op development had actually started out as a leader in their mutual aid society. So, again, these already having some experience with this kind of cooperation and sharing of money, sharing of uh, decisions about money, making things happen in your community, then carries over into how they resonate to being in the co-op movement, starting co-ops, helping other people to start co-ops, that kind of thing. So, there is a really interesting uh, thread, tradition and legacy no matter which century we're looking at, no matter what economic status we had, where we're always doing this economic cooperation, often led by Black women.
0: And, you know, in your book, you you also talk about the role that Black women play, and you just alluded to this, but I just want to lift this up. Uh, the role Black women play in educating the community about the importance of Cooperation and right. and um, economic cooperatives and how they function and how they can be used and you know there there's it's it's not just happenstance that people get involved there's like real concerted efforts to educate people about this
1: right absolutely deliberate ed- co-op education and I actually uh, when I was finishing the book and trying to pull out the trends and lessons learned, one of the things I realized is that most of the black co-ops that I had any information about how they started, started with a study group. People coming together to study the problem, study what was happening in their lives, and then somebody coming across or knowing about a co-op or something, and then everybody studying cooperative economics together. And often, I even have comments by male cooperators about how important the women's leadership and the women's control over the women's guild, controlling the economic education program, things like that, how important it was. Even uh, in the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters in the 1930s and 40s, right, a black Labor union, mostly a male labor union, but they have a ladies' auxiliary, and their president, who was president for 30 years, actually worked closely with A. Philip Randolph to do co-op education among the women and the men. She, uh, the leader Helena Wilson, uh, actually started like 17 study groups in different uh, in different chapters of the union all around the country and in Canada. So just. Listening to these accounts and seeing both how important education was and again, how important women's leadership in doing this kind of education. Um, So they were learning themselves and then teaching other people and then making sure that the information got out Ella Jo Baker. Uh, started mm-hmm. her career in the Young Negroes Cooperative League. She was also her role ex- as executive director of the Young Negroes Cooperative League was to educate young black people about how to start co-ops and to support them. And in one of her newsletters, she talks about traveling all over the country, you know, a city a night, just talking and telling people about co-ops. She wrote columns about how to start a co-op, what a co-op is, why to do it. The same thing with Elena Wilson with the Brotherhood. She used to write columns in there. I think it's the Black Worker magazine that they had Mm -hmm. explaining Mm -hmm. what a co-op is. She was studying European co ops She was studying co-ops among white folks and then reporting on it, writing columns just so people would know, have that information and have Mm -hmm. enough information to know that they could then go and start a co-op.
0: And W.E.B. Du Bois did a lot of writing. I mean, there were people really um, invested in this as an alternative for Black people um, to the current economic system, which at the time, I mean, it continues today. But what, you know, they see how they saw how exploitative it was. They saw how exclusionary it was in terms of not allowing Blacks access to economic assets and economic, independent economic activity um, and you know, you, you just have so many people writing about this, looking at this issue of cooperative economics, studying it, teaching about it. It just seemed, and, and it shaped a lot of, uh, people who are, we consider like the early civil rights pioneers of our time were really heavily involved, including Fannie Lou Hamer, John Lewis, A. Philip Randolph, et cetera.
1: Right. Ella Baker, Ella Baker, right? Yeah. No, it's really amazing. That was another surprising thing. So I was quite surprised about how important education was. I was quite surprised about the strong role of black women, though I shouldn't have been surprised about that one. But in the general co-op movement, women aren't don't always have that kind of leadership. So mm-hmm. it was kind of an anomaly from what I was studying that black women would be so um But then the other piece that I found was that the co-op movement, the black co-op movement seemed to be a parallel silent partner to the long civil rights movement. So when I say the long civil rights movement, I don't just mean the 50s, 60s when we think about the civil rights movement. But some of us talk about the long civil rights movement being any act of resistance and rebellion that African-Americans did from when we were brought to the new world, to the to the Americas. Um, and in that long civil rights movement, I was able to find almost parallel activities with economic justice and economic democracy through economic cooperation. And then also by the 20th century, I sometimes challenge my audiences, tell me about a 20th century hero or shero, and I could probably connect them also to the a black hero or shiro, I could also probably tell you a connection they have to a the, a co-op or the co-op movement or something like that. So, Du Bois is an interesting one. Most people know all kinds of other things about W.E.B. Du Bois, right? What an intellectually was first history PhD from Harvard. Uh, he's supposed to be start have started urban sociology, right? He made a big speech at the turn of the 19th century telling saying that the color line was the biggest issue. But, you know, in 1907, he wrote a book on economic cooperation among Negro Americans and said that we were at a crossroads economically and that if we needed to choose cooperation instead of continuing to go the individual way where only a few people would be wealthy and the rest of the race would be left behind. So he early on in his career was also challenging us to think about a group cooperative economy that would bring most of the black people up. Economically raise our status economically if we would just cooperate, but he's not well known for that. Mm-hmm. Um, John well, Lewis, one of his first—oh, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. John Lewis, one of his first jobs uh, was helping people in Alabama start co-ops and stuff. And SNCC actually mm-hmm. did co-op development. Again, they're better known for their voting rights actions and for their assertion of. Um, Black youth radicalism, right? But their actual activities were mostly around uh, starting helping people start co-ops and doing co-op development and that kind of thing. The Black Panther Party, another one, uh, they were practicing cooperative economics. That's partly how they lived with co-housing. They had a co-op newspaper. That's where they brought most of their money in. They were doing free distribution of food. They had co-op bakeries and shoe factories, because again they were trying to practice the kind of world they wanted they were fighting for us to transform into and their part of mm-hmm. their attitude was we can't fight for a world we don't know that we're not already experien you know trying to create because if right. we win then we don't know what to do right so we need to act now we need these survival programs while we're waiting for revolution but they need to be modeling the kind of solidarity mm-hmm. cooperative world that we want to live in. And so that's what they were doing on the ground, even though, again, the publicity was all about self-defense, anti-police brutality, which were important issues. But every people were ignoring the actual economic cooperation, right. economic solidarity that they were practicing daily to survive.
0: Right. I want to pick this back up, the, the relationship between this economic cooperation as a strategy for political liberation and freedom and right uh civil rights and everything because it's 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 all connected. Um you're listening to solutions. This is Amadi Braxton here with uh Dr. Gordon Emhart talking about African American and cooperative economics and the history. We'll be right back. <laughs> young people beg for the attention of their president concerning our actions abroad. I would encourage them to speak out, organize for peaceful change and vote in November. You're listening to Solutions with Amadi Braxton on WURD Progressive Black Talk Media. Welcome back to Solutions. This is your host, Amadi Braxton, back with Professor Jessica Gordon-Nemhardt, talking about the history of African-Americans and economic cooperation. And um, I want to bring us to um, another important period in history around uh, where we saw uh, a spurring of economic cooperation and economic cooperative development, which is post-Reconstruction. And, um, you know, when things were kind of being retrenched and Jim Crow was growing and then moving into the the Great Depression era. Talk about the, you know, that period and what's in, what is important to understand about African-Americans and cooperative economics, maybe even more generally in that period.
1: That uh, the 1880s is a fascinating period in US history for a number of reasons, as you said, It's post reconstruction, so it's a backlash period for black rights. Um, It's the rise of the Ku Klux Klan. It's the rise of the Jim Crow uh, segregation, apartheid era in the US. And so it's really a repressive time in some ways. There's also some economic depression going on, but the populist movement, the uh, organized labor movement, and the cooperative movement all grew up together in that period. And all the progressive populist organizations were also labor unions and co-op development organizations. So there was lots of stuff happening. One of my favorite examples is the Knights of Labor, which was actually an integrated union uh, throughout the country, a very progressive union. It was a, a, a political. It was a populist party, and it was a, a co-op development. Group starting worker co-ops, especially, because they believe that the only way for workers to really have control over their lives and work is if they own their own companies. Um, In Richmond, Virginia, in the late 1880s, they ran candidates for the city council because uh, the city of Richmond was going to this is just one example of of how all these things c- came together. The city of Richmond was planning to rebuild their city hall, which had been which the Confederates had burned down because they didn't when the when they were losing, they didn't want the Union to come in and have a a nice city hall. So the Confederates burned down their own city hall, and now ten or fifteen years later, the new city council is trying to build a new one, but they had, but the old members were planning to use convict labor to build. And the progressives did not want that. So the Knights of Labor created uh, a working man's party, ran candidates and won the majority of the seats in the city council and were able not only to thwart the movement to use convict labor to build, but they also were able to use unionized labor, integrated black and white labor, uh, through some worker co-ops that their, uh, that their union owned and, uh, co ad labor. They also were uh, supporting women's rights and women's rights to be construction workers and that kind of thing. This is the 1888, 1885, 1888. So, an absolutely fantastic example. It's also a fantastic example because in those days, Virginia was just starting segregation. And so, even though the Knights of Labor were an integrated union, blacks and whites could not meet in the same room. So they coordinated this strategy with meeting, having blacks chapters meet separately than white chapters, but behind the scenes and underground, the leaders would meet together. So they all had the same, it was the same platform, the same thing. They ran black and white candidates, you know, blacks in the black districts and whites in the white districts. So it's just a fascinating uh, organizing example of what you can do. And especially when you combine all the issues, right? Mm-hmm. so that you're not struggling either against women or against integration, but you're including women, you're doing in- racial integration, you're doing co-op development, you're doing worker ownership, right? Um, so fascinating. There was and you're also, running candidates.
0: You're, and you're trying to political right? so power a political too. Political
1: party, right? So, you know, the Black Panther Party is similar because they tried to run candidates too. So it's kind of reminiscent in the 1960s. But anyway, this is the 1880s. Uh, you know, high repressive period. Um, unfortunately that uh, movement is only about four or five years old, but it created a bunch of other uh, co-op and labor movements that were combined. And then the young, uh, not sorry, the Colored Farmers National Alliance and Cooperative Union started to be just a black organization because it was also with the rising Jim Crow and the rising white supremacist terrorism, it was harder and harder to have an integrated group so there was a, a farmers alliance which was a populist party that was also doing co-ops but the colored the black folks created their own throughout the south um and to this day most historians say that the colored farmers national alliance and cooperative union was the largest black organization in our history over mm-hmm. a million members wow. again during the time of huge repression and this is an organization that not only was and was owned by both black farm owners, so a few landowners and the majority black workers, farm workers, so a combination of people who owned land and people who only own their own labor, so another kind of anomaly and that's usually you don't see those kind of coalitions, a mm-hmm. huge organization that was doing co-op development they also had a um they didn't we didn't have credit union legislation yet, so they had what were called credit exchanges to help blacks to own land, to get mortgages. You know, they would pool their own resources to give loans to help some people buy land so they could move from being a a farm laborer to a farm owner, that kind of thing. They were a political party, so they were pushing candidates and they were creating co-ops. Again, mostly worker co-ops, some farm co-ops. They also only lasted about four or five years because of the horrible repression. They spent half of their years underground trying to... um, for people not to realize what they were doing so they wouldn't be stopped. But again, just a fascinating confluence of movements, ideas, and energy at a time that was really a repressive time in our history. But again, mm-hmm. the basis was this cooperation, economic cooperation, solidarity, both labor, organizing, and co-op, and worker co-ops, not just consumer co-ops, farm co-ops, or credit co-ops.
0: And it's, I mean, it's it's... Uh- I want to just lift up in that example, you know, you have landowners and the people who work the land working together cooperatively for the yep. benefit of everyone. Yep. Um, it's not an exploitative relationship where the landowner has this asset and they're going to try to, you know, work the 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 laborer as much as they can for as little as they can um in order to make a maximum profit. They're they're working in collaboration with input from the, the workers, you know, sharing exactly. knowledge and information and trying to figure out what is the best for all of us in this situation. Right. And
1: this notion, right? So the Knights of Labor understood that if they didn't raise up black labor, they couldn't raise up white labor. The Colored Farmers Alliance realized that if you didn't raise up black labor, black farmers couldn't, you know, that it was we were all in this together and that we were stronger fighting together. And Mm -hmm. that really the issues were the same. So the farmers wanted cotton prices higher. So did the laborers because if cotton prices was higher, they got higher wages, right? So there, there were boycotts and strikes to get the cotton prices higher, but it was all in everybody's best interest. So they were able to see these confluences, right? And how these things were in everybody's best interest and how they were stronger together.
0: And, you know, one of the things in your book, you said that, you know, these these organizations saw that they were kind of f- resisting both the the southern um, segregationist and, you know, uh, large um, landowning class. As well as the northern industrialists, it's right. like both the southern and the northern wealthier classes or trying to exploit labor like that. They're trying to maximize profit and they were trying to figure out an alternative way.
1: Exactly. And a way for dignified labor that was controlled by the people who were doing the labor. Right. Um, And it didn't really matter. Right. Whether it was an exploitative landowner or an exploitative factory owner right? the principles that we should be in control of our own labor, right? We would already just gotten control over our bodies, right? With emancipation, right. but we hadn't gotten control over the economics. So now we're asserting, right? It's not enough to be able to be free in terms of our bodies are our own. We really have to control the economics and the economics that's based on democracy and justice is the kind of economics we want to create.
0: Right. So uh, in our last few minutes we have, um, I want to fast forward to the late 20th century and 21st century so far and the co-op movement of today. Um, are co-ops alive and well in Black America today? Um, Absolutely. How, how can co-ops continue to be an important economic strategy for, for us at a time where it feels like Wall Street is controlling everything in our lives?
1: Right. Well, we're actually, uh, I'm now saying we're in a fourth wave of uh, black co-op proliferation, the 2020s. And my other periods were the 1880s, the 1930s and 40s, which we talked a little bit about in the 1960s and 70s. And now here we are in the 2020s. I haven't researched as much, but certainly in terms of... Um, the groups that I know that have contacted me, groups I've gone to talk to, other things I've been reading—we're definitely in a surge, both among Black folks, but also uh, in the in the U.S. in general. Um, I think people have gotten fed up between uh, the last great recession we had and the housing crisis, and then uh, the health crisis with COVID, and workers realizing that empl- their employers didn't have their best interests at heart or they weren't protecting their health, right? There's much more interest. Also, we noticed during the pandemic that worker co-ops were actually surviving better during the pandemic than regular businesses because they were more flexible they could figure out ways to kind of pivot and redo so more and more people got have gotten excited about either converting existing businesses to worker co-ops there's more activity creating black food co-ops than i've seen in decades um there's more uh Cities with large black populations promoting worker co-op development and co-op development. New York City, Philadelphia, Chicago, uh, Oakland, uh, Richmond, California, Richmond, Virginia, Atlanta. I think D.C. is even trying. Philly. Oh, I said Philly already. Sorry, trying to make sure your audience hears themselves in this. Um, uh, St. Paul, Minnesota there's lots of activity happening. Local black co-op development organizations is a growing, there's a new national black association, national association of black cooperators that's starting. Um, they're about to have their third annual co- black co-op uh, conference. Uh, so there's lots and lots of activity, sharing of information, developing black leadership, starting, you know, Sometimes it starts again with mutual aid. So there was a surge in mutual aid, especially during the COVID pandemic. And some of those mutual aid activities ended up being more formalized into sometimes of co-op activities. There's actually more co-op activity among previously incarcerated people, finding ways to start co-ops with previously incarcerated people as a way to make sure they get good jobs and access to good jobs. So it's lots of exciting stuff happening right now. There's almost no excuse for not exploring that option if you're interested in it. We still have a communications problem, right? People still don't know enough about it. I still kind of argue that we need to teach it in schools. We need to get mm-hmm. our young people our young people, to start co-ops because then their families would know more about it. Um, So, we still need to figure out how to communicate this strategy and the benefits better, and we still need to do more education, but there's lots of resources, both information and even possibilities for financing out there. Um, We still need better enabling laws. We also still need our financial system to understand co-ops, especially worker co-ops, better for how to put together the finance packages, but we also have some co-op, dedicated co-op funding sources. And we're trying to educate more funders about how to do this and why they should do it and that kind of thing. So Mm -hmm. it's a really exciting period. um, And the possibilities, I see the possibilities as endless.
0: I mean, one big area that I think, well, Two two things. One is I know that restaurants really faced a, a, a huge hardship during the pandemic. Um, and I've heard of some restaurants becoming worker owned and collectivizing right. the 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 economic burden and the responsibility of the business. And um, And what have you heard about that?
1: Um, yes, I can't name you specific restaurants that converted, but I also, um, have read the same thing that some, uh, the groups, uh, deliberately converted because they realized they had more flexibility. They could take advantage of the need to change if there were a worker or if the workers were owning it and controlling it and making those decisions together. Mm-hmm. Um, I do have an interesting example, not of a restaurant, but in Chicago, Chai Fresh Kitchen. Mm-hmm. Um, what they did—they start—they opened during COVID to provide healthy meals to homebound people, mm-hmm. um, and so they were able to take advantage of the fact that more people needed, you know, healthy meals delivered to them. Um, they're an organization that's predominantly women and predominantly previously incarcerated people. So they pulled together uh, workers who really needed these kinds of opportunities, but also put together a really unique, interesting business plan in terms of how to provide really uh, appropriate, healthy food to shut-ins and to, or to people who needed pre-made meals, that kind of thing. So they were able to launch during COVID and they're doing really well mm. now. Um
0: the you know the other also big... a
1: Black Food Co-op in Dayton that pretty much opened during COVID and mm-hmm. a part of a whole ecosystem in Dayton, Ohio of <laughs> of black cooperation.
0: Another huge area of need is housing. Right. And I I read an article in the Times New York Times a few weeks ago about a Bronx uh apartment building where a landlord was uh not necessarily doing what they should in terms of upkeep and repairs and um and it in the end the end of the story is that the tenants ended up working with an organization to help them secure financing to purchase the property from the owner and now it's a cooperatively owned uh tenant owned right. organization i mean right. a bu- building excuse building, me building
1: yeah no there's fabulous stories about that new york city actually has the largest number of housing co-ops both low-income and market-rate housing co-ops. Um, and they have a great organization called UHAB, which helps yes. tenants to buy the buildings and then helps them to learn how to rehab their units to keep the cost down and to keep the places affordable. I actually work with an organization in Washington, D.C. called One D.C. We also um, advocate for anti-gentrification and affordable housing. And we've helped tenants to organize. Um, in In D.C., there's a First tenants have first right to a refusal when their landlords are going to sell. And so what we do is help them to organize enough to take that um, offer to buy and then to give them the education and connect them with the financing to convert to a housing co-op. Limited equity housing co-ops are the ones that keep the housing permanently affordable.
0: Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm.
1: And so and because- I think DC has the second largest number of housing co-ops, but a lot of places have them. There's also uh, college students often have create housing co-ops again in order to have um, affordable housing while they're in college, and that's another interesting housing model. Uh, and another place where we found that grows cooperators right once you have experience doing a housing co-op while you're in college, you're more interested in co-ops and doing other kinds of co-op activity because you've seen how it works.
0: Right. Well, Dr. Gordon Emhard thank you so much for being on. We're at the end of our time, and I feel like we've dipped our toe into this really <laughs> rich history. There's so much in this book. I, I highly encourage people to go out and um, purchase this book or get it from your library, Collective Courage, A History of African-American Cooperative Economic Thought and Practice, by Dr. Jessica Gordon-Emhard. Such a pleasure to talk to you. Such a pleasure to read this book and get into this history. Thank you so, so much. You've been listening to Word Radio On Demand. Listen live at 96.1 FM, 900 AM and online at wordradio.com.